0: Hello, and welcome to the first full episode of Death to America. I'm your host, Death, and today I would like to share with you the story of two dissidents. These men led radically different lives and had totally divergent views on politics, yet they both suffered the same fate at the hands of the American regime, assassination for political acts. Our two dissidents are Fred Hampton, a leader in the Black Panther Party, and Gordon Call, an advocate against illegal taxation and government overreach. Mr. Hampton may be more well known to some owing to the famous nature of the Black Panthers, but Mr. Call's story is no less important in understanding the oppressive and vindictive nature of our government. To begin, I would like to go over the story of each man's life. Following that, I will go over how the assassination of dissidents like these exposed the lie that is America the land of the free. First, Mr. Hampton. Raised primarily in Chicago, Fred developed a reputation as an activist early on in life. He helped organize walkouts at his school to protest in favor of greater employment of black teachers for the primarily black student body. Additionally, in an early example of what would later become standard Black Panther practice, he organized free breakfasts for fellow children, helping to prepare meals himself. Upon graduating high school, he attended Triton College for pre-law, viewing an understanding of law as an instrument to fight the state. This parallels other activists such as Gandhi, who was also a lawyer by trade. But Fred's ideological influences were more focused on revolutionaries such as Mao or Che, whose stars were rising in the 60s following the Chinese and Cuban revolutions. Fred's skills as an activist were honed in demonstrating during his time in the NAACP, When he became known for organizing over 500 youths from a population of just 27,000 in Chicago. But the Black Panther Party's 10-point program appealed more to Fred's revolutionary mindset, and he joined the party where he quickly rose through the ranks. Fred's rise was not only due to his unquestionable skills as an orator and organizer, but also due to the actions of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, which, as a matter of policy, targeted the Panther leadership under the COINTELPRO operation. COINTELPRO is deserving of its own series of podcasts, and may feature in future episodes, but can be briefly summarized as the FBI's extrajudicial efforts to remove political threats to the government. Following an incident where Fred seized ice cream from a truck and distributed it to children of a local neighborhood, he was sentenced to two to five years in prison. It should be noted that the total value of the ice cream was around $70. is highly likely this outsized sentence for petty theft was the product of COINTELPRO interference. Following Fred's release, And with the continued attrition of Panther leadership, Fred rose to be deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Panthers, a position in which he oversaw the creation of non-aggression pacts with other radical organizations slash street gangs. These truces evolved into cooperation and were dubbed the Rainbow Coalition owing to the fact that the other two primary groups were the Young Patriots, a group consisting primarily of whites from Appalachia, whose symbol was the Confederate battle flag, and the Young Lords, who were Latinos, mostly Puerto Ricans, who would later make a name for themselves in the Puerto Rican independence movement. One wonder is what Fred's ancestors, who hailed from Louisiana, would have thought of his alliance with the group emblazoned with the Confederate flag, but it seems that Fred recognized the overwhelmingly important matter of opposing the current regime over anything else. It was this cooperation across racial lines that drew the personal ire of Director Hoover, who threatened the career of agents who reported that the Panthers' primary activity was feeding children. Cooperation was as much of a threat to those in power then as it is now, which is doubtlessly why Fred was targeted for assassination. Following an arrest, William O'Neill was turned into a government informant and infiltrated the Panthers at at the behest of the state, and got as far as being Hampton's personal bodyguard. In November of 1969, several Panthers engaged in a shootout with Chicago police, in which each side lost one man. This provided the pretext for a raid on Hampton's house. O'Neill dosed food that he'd prepared for Hampton with a barbiturate, and Chicago police executed a raid on his home, which was then shared with several other Panthers, including Hampton's girlfriend, Deborah Johnson, who was nine weeks pregnant at the time of the raid. Police opened fire on the house without cause and quickly moved to arrest everyone inside. Officers dragged Deborah from the room where Hampton was unconscious, and she reported hearing two shots from the room. Hampton was left in a pool of his own blood, while the other seven Panthers in the house were arrested on extreme and outrageous charges related to the raid itself. Each Panther was given $100,000 bail. These charges were later dropped, which is unsurprising given that CPD officers lied blatantly in their testimony, reporting that the Panthers had fired first, which was false. The police were later have found to have shot between 90 and 100 rounds into the house. Blood tests on Hampton's body conducted by the county coroner revealed traces of a sedative. The same tests being run by an FBI chemist unsurprisingly did not report those traces. A lawsuit filed by the surviving Panthers and relatives of Hampton against the government in 1970 was dismissed, but revived in 1979 after the government was found to have withheld relevant documents in the first case. The government eventually agreed to settle the case, paying over five million dollars. The U.S. Attorney General denied that the settlement was an admission of guilt, because of course he did, Fred and Deborah's son, Fred Hampton Jr., later followed in his father's footsteps as an activist in the Black Panthers. And this is but a brief history of Fred Hampton's life. I would encourage anyone interested to do their own research on him and his activism. The whole period of Chicago in the 60s, 70s and 80s is definitely worth knowing about. Next, I will talk about the life and murder of Mr. Gordon Call. Gordon Call was born in 1920 in North Dakota. Raised on a farm, he was famously stubborn and independent. Despite his problems with authority, Gordon went on to be a decorated gunner in World War II, serving and sustaining injuries in both theaters. Following the war, he briefly attended college before dropping out, lamenting that course requirements didn't make sense and that he didn't have options to take classes that interested him. In addition to briefly attending college, he married his wife Joan in 1945. He presented her with a 20-gauge shotgun as a wedding present. An amusing anecdote to those of us who don't live in the countryside, but an important tool for those living far from civilization. Returning to his home state of North Dakota, he purchased a 400-acre farm for him and his wife. Over time, their family would grow with six children two sons, Yori and Frederick, and four daughters, Lorna, Linda, Lonnie, and Lorene. Gordon's independent streak continued as he took up farming. When attending a government-sponsored course on farming, he found the guidance offered to be contradictory with what he knew of farming, and he quit the course. A similar instance occurred when the government offered a subsidy program to grow certain crops. Gordon found that, even with the subsidy, he would be better off planting his fields with crops of his own choosing. In Gordon we see not just a stubborn man, but a prime example of the rugged yeoman, which has so often been the personification of the American West. It was this free-minded spirit, and probably his experience with incompetent government policies, that pushed Gordon towards anti-tax activism. His activism began in 1967, when Gordon wrote a letter to the IRS, noting that he refused to pay taxes to the, quote, synagogue of Satan under the second plank of the Communist Manifesto. The following year, Gordon joined the Christian Constitutionalist Party, and soon after started the Texas chapter of the Posse Comitatus. The Posse Comitatus was a right-wing populist movement of mostly ruralites who did not recognize the legitimacy of the United States government and sought to live free of state tyranny, most often manifested as taxation. As part of his growing activism, Gordon took to public access television to encourage his fellow citizens not to pay taxes, and more specifically to file W-4 exemptions. This public call may have been what drew the ire of the IRS, who charged Gordon with the misdemeanor crime of willful failure to pay income tax. He was convicted and sentenced to two years in prison. He served his sentence not in a low-security facility, as one may expect a family man with no violent criminal record to be sent to, but at Leavenworth, the infamous prison which has housed such figures as James Earl Ray, Whitey Bulger, and Michael Vick. After being released from prison and on probation, Gordon was accused of violating his probation by non-payment of taxes. Sympathizing with Gordon, the neighbor of the Call family offered to pay the tax bill, but the IRS refused to declare the amount of Gordon's tax bill. It is possible that Gordon, in fact, did not owe any income taxes, as he was far from a wealthy man. In a further illustration of community spirit, when the IRS seized the Kahl farm and attempted to sell it at auction, none of the members of the community bid on it, a practice most prominently seen in the Dust Bowl and Depression. While the Kahl family was leaving a posse comitatus meeting one day, Gordon's oldest son, Yori, noticed suspicious-looking men watching them, and he quickly requested that he and his father switch coats and hats to obscure Gordon's identity. The suspicious men turned out to be U.S. Marshals attempting to arrest Gordon. Initially wanting to pin the Call clan in a trailer park and risk civilian casualties to try and cow their victims, the Marshals settled for a roadblock. Confusion reigned as Yori asserted he'd heard the Marshals fire without warning and opted to return fire. During the shootout Yori was wounded and two Marshals died, although it is possible one died from friendly fire. The Marshals were actually forced to retreat or incapacitated, and Gordon took one of their cars, left the wounded Yori at a medical facility, and fled towards Arkansas. Yori's subsequent trial and imprisonment could be a subject of their own Death to America episode, but for the purposes of this podcast, I will say that he was subject to two life sentences plus 15 years. It is in Smithville, Arkansas, where a combination of FBI agents, marshals, and state police tracked Gordon. He'd been staying in the home of friends when three officers entered. The official narrative is that Gordon hid behind a refrigerator and fired on the county sheriff when he entered the kitchen. The sheriff returned fire, killing call. The other two agents then fired, seemingly blindly, into the kitchen, further wounding the sheriff. When the wounded officer stumbled out of the building and said that he'd gotten Gordon, the SWAT team attached to the task force, subsequently fired thousands of rounds into the building, and then poured diesel fuel down the chimney, burning the building down. The fact that this makes no sense is not surprising. This is a government narrative after all. Further complicating this narrative is the fact that it seems that Gordon's body was partially dismembered, and his charred foot was left behind when his body was removed from the building. Additionally, an autopsy suggested that the bullet through the head that killed him had come from behind, not the front, as a shootout would suggest. What is more, what is a more likely series of events is that the sheriff found Gordon unaware, executed him with the shot to the head, prompting confused friendly fire from the other officers, and then in anger the SWAT team either dismembered Gordon's body or fired so many rounds into the building that he was eviscerated. Additionally, In case you thought that the feds were done with the Call family, Joan Call had been forced to record public pleas for Gordon to turn himself in, lest she herself face charges as though she were a wanted criminal. For further information on Gordon and the violence inflicted upon him and his family, I will direct those interested to the documentary Death and Taxes that concludes the scripted portion of this episode. The rest of this will just be my commentary. I have notes, but I'm not reading off script. If you couldn't tell previously, I was. Uh, I will say also that the two portions of this episode were recorded separately, as well as this commentary was separate as well, because right after finishing the section on Fred Hampton, I suffered a case of the hiccups, which I am going to go ahead and attribute to the CIA, because I guess in addition to discovering and weaponizing a heart attack gun to use on political opponents. They've developed a hiccup gun for less serious cases, such as podcasters like myself. Uh, So going over kind of the two guys here, I think their stories are vastly different in some ways, and also very similar. Uh, We see in both men's cases they were subject to kind of brief prison stents. Uh, Obviously in the case of uh, Gordon Call, he went to Leavenworth, I don't know where Fred Hampton spent his uh, his stint in prison, but I don't imagine it was a very nice prison in Chicago either. The The point of both of those prison stints seems to have been to discourage them in some way. Th- that, frankly, as a concept in like state policy has never really made a whole lot of sense to me. It's like, oh, we don't like you or you've committed some crime. We're going to send you away to be with a bunch of people who we also don't like or have committed crimes that quite likely are worse than the ones you did, uh, you know, just fraternize with them for the next, you know, year to five years, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, that is what it is. And in clearly in both men's cases, it did not do anything to discourage them. Uh, I, I have to imagine actually in Fred's case, it probably made him more radical. His son, Fred Hampton Jr. went on to be, he himself suffered a prison stint and went on to be like a big prison you know, rights activists, prisoners of conscience, I believe it's called. Um, and, you know, I think Gordon probably had a similar experience, you know, he was a Christian man before, and uh, Christianity and, and spiritualism generally is known for uh, having an impact on people in prison, so I imagine that was a, a good source of comfort for him, um, and probably just deepened his determination. And to deepen the determination of his family as well. You know, your your patriarch, your father, your husband being sent away doesn't exactly endear you to the state uh, most oftentimes. Um, But uh, I I wanted to talk a little bit, I guess, about some of the problems with these guys' ideology as well, uh, because we're not just going to praise people here just because they are, you know, against the state. So with Hampton in particular, I don't really have... I'm not going to, like crap on these guys too much what i want to do is kind of examine what i think is the failure of their ideologies to a certain degree i think hampton's is it was a little more fleshed out because he was a political figure right gordon did kind of make stems into politics you could say with his public broadcast but fred hampton was like an activist in a big city making a big impact um and what i what i see is kind of his flaw is really a flaw that's in most leftist kind of modern leftist revolutionary ideals is like I want to liberate my people like we are fighting an explicitly identitarian uh you know struggle in his case for African Americans uh but also I'm a Marxist-Leninist and I don't like in theory see race as a thing at all and now in his case he did like pursue the Rainbow Coalition which kind of just compounds the contradiction because it was a bunch of other leftist groups that were explicitly racial uh you know as i said the the young patriots who were appalachian whites very specifically appalachian whites and the young lords who were primarily puerto rican latinos but these are both leftist groups who are like oh yeah you know we're marxist or whatever and i think that that kind of comes down to the fact that the united states government has you know is seen as right wing to a large degree obviously jay or could be seen by some as like a I actually think he was more of a reactionary uh, than anything else, but he was, you know, could be perceived as a, a stooge of capitalism, uh, which is probably not an unfair accusation, it's probably true, but I almost see him as almost devoid of ideology. Um, he it was just kind of like a uh, a giant hammer coming down on any, any kind of dissent. He investigated and pursued the destruction of the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, you know, Right-wing movements just as just as fervently as he did left-wing ones in many cases. I think left-wing activism, just given the time of the 60s, 70s, was was probably just the the bigger target um, for him specifically. Uh, you know his his actions with Martin Luther King are somewhat famous nowadays. His investigations of him and uh, the fact he sent sent him a letter telling him to kill himself, which is I, mean, you know, I frankly, if I was Martin Luther King, I would take that as a point of pride that J Edgar Hoover sent me a letter telling me to kill myself. I think I'd frame it on a wall. But um, it's also obviously very serious because J Edgar Hoover, for most of his life, you know, had the you know, life and death. Uh, ability over a lot of people, uh, which he frequently exercised, as we saw with uh, specifically Fred Hampton, but that ability did not leave uh, the department or the government when he died. I think he died when he was in office, I'd have to double check. Um, but kind of to continue on with like, you know, problems in ideology, you know, Gordon Call's general shtick, uh with the posse comitatus was like, we are oppressed by the government, you know, the government, it, I mean, the exact legalisms they would go into is kind of like it's important, but it's not exactly relevant. Basically, they were like the government is not representative of us. Uh, we don't think paying tax. We don't believe in paying taxes to a government that's not legitimate. And in his case, in the in the case of uh you know what would become like the Montana Freeman or the Posse Comitatus, it was pretty much like kind of a, a predecessor of the militia movement of the '90s. Like these were guys living in the countryside with guns, who did not pay their taxes, and would fuck up anybody who, like, came at them. Which, in Gordon's case, he literally did. There's not many people who can say they won a a shootout with federal marshals, but, I mean, he did. Uh, I mean, but they were serious people, you could say that of them. But the problem is that their ideology is kind of on shaky ground. Um, I mean, there's a lot of religion in there as well. Uh, Which, obviously, if you're not that particular brand of religion, can kind of not make a whole lot of sense to you. Uh, I think the kind of modern day version of this, especially since the decline of the militias in the post 90s, you know, the Janet Reno administration uh, during the Clinton government, um, is like the sovereign citizens. And sovereign citizens are a mixed bag. I mean, there are people who are legitimately intelligent who just think that they have found a loophole to get out of paying taxes or following the law or you know get out of speeding tickets or whatever and in some cases I look I'm not going to try to judge them on whether or not their legal arguments are right because I'm not a lawyer and frankly it, it doesn't really matter but I think most sovereign citizens most people who call themselves a sovereign citizen are using it to just get out of like I said get out of speeding tickets um and you know that's fine whatever and it's kind of funny to see them on YouTube like oh officer I'm not I'm not in this uh car I'm not driving I'm traveling on the land I I just think that it's just another reason for people to like shit on not like America but like our Americans and you know, it's, you know it kind of gets to the point of this podcast are we are we Americans or do we have to find some other identity. Um, uh, but regardless of that, I don't think it makes us as a whole people look very good when some of us are, uh, denying basic concepts because of some weird, uh, uh, weird legal shenanigans, basically. Um, now obviously Gordon Call was not like that at all. Uh, but I think that's the problem where you, of sort of ungrounded, unfounded, uh, legal assertions like well i don't have to pay taxes because as he said like the irs was the synagogue of satan under the second plank of the communist manifesto which like don't get me wrong that's that's a pretty hard line to take with a government agency but it's not actually based in a legal argument like it's not i mean i guess it is is a statement of legality but it's not something that you can work within the system on frankly i think sovereign citizens nowadays obviously have gotten a little bit better about that because those that didn't just die in shootouts um or are murdered i guess but uh you know it's just gotten a little bit silly i guess is my point um call and i think hampton together better understood power than sort of the modern sovereign citizen modern sovereign citizens in many cases are just looking for that that one like string of magic words that they can say to a judge or to a police officer to get them what they want obviously if that existed if sovereign citizens were right uh, that'd be great but that is pretty much not going to happen the only way it will is if a judge is having like a bad day and is like just get this stupid bastard out of my courtroom before i lose my mind i will just throw out a charge so you have to see somebody again but colin hampton i I would say this less of Hampton, maybe, because he never, I don't think, actually took up a gun. But uh, the Black Panthers generally, and the Posse Comitatus, both sort of understood that force is the ultimate arbiter of these things, and that's why, you know, at the end of the day, Gordon and his clan, in his case it was his son Yori, were willing to, like, pull guns on people who came up to them with what they thought were bad intentions. And the Black Panthers, obviously very famous for doing that as well, to the point that they personally incurred laws from this uh, state like California, which adopted its kind of famous anti-gun position partially in response to the fact that the Panthers were just, you know, going a little wild, uh, I guess, in, in response to, like, encounters with, I think, specifically the LAPD. And I think at one point they'd also, like... I mean, I guess, relatively peacefully taken over the state capital. Um, insofar as that can be peaceful. I mean, guys with guns tend to generally get what they want, uh, and if they don't, obviously, you know, th- there might be a problem, which is, I think, kind of what they operated on for the most part. Uh, most of their encounters with police, I expect, were not violent because they continued to be an in institution for quite a while. Uh, but their their shtick was to stand around police encounters with, you know, other people armed and just observe. And, you know, a lot of times that can be totally peaceful and you can just, you know, prevent any law enforcement uh, problems that might arise. And maybe the, the, the civilian being arrested would kind of feel the need to just sort of get this encounter over with, or, or maybe not, I don't, I don't really know, but their, their understanding of force boiled down to, you know, we're armed guys with guns here. And I, I just want to contrast that, I guess, with, you know, more modern descendants of, of both their ideology and, uh, and Gordon Calls, which being sovereign citizens. But moving on, I guess from critiquing these guys, I just I think it's important to articulate. And I, and I mentioned this with them going to prison, and both having that kind of be their first encounter with the government as a as a punitive thing. Um, ultimately, they were treated the same, basically. I mean, these are guys. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. They are totally different. I mean, one's a, a Black Panther, you know, sort of Black nationalist guy living in in Chicago. And the other one is a farmer in North Dakota, you know, I guess going out of that state sometimes, but generally within rural North Dakota. And what does the state do? They target them first for, uh, you know, sort of a smaller prison stint, and then they start investigating them. And then when they realize that they're not going to stop, in Hamden's case, it was, I think, what very well might have triggered his assassination. this is just pure speculation based on sort of the events as I understand them, is he had gone, I think it was to California to sort of a a Black Panther Party meeting, a headquarters sort of thing, and they were going to put him on central committee. So he was about to go from sort of the small, not small time, but sort of state-level regional impacts to being a national figure for the Black Panther Party. Um, and you know, shortly thereafter, he hadn't even had a chance to be sworn into the office in as far as that was a, a process before he got killed. And Gordon Call, I think the, you know, the thing that triggered the IRS to act, or the government generally to act the way that they did was his public declarations on various media to, you know, his fellow farmers basically to, you know, not pay taxes. <laughs> um, Which you know, obviously, if one guy doesn't pay taxes, you can kind of just kind of squish him with a prison sentence. But as soon as he starts telling other people, you know, all it takes is you know five or ten people, and you can't put them all in jail. And then before you know it, nobody's paying their taxes. Which I mean, that's that's a separate topic for how important that is. But really, in the case of uh, Gordon, it was more about just you need to do what we tell you, not that we like need your money, because as I said, it's quite possible he didn't, in fact, owe the government to any money. He just didn't file a return. Um, and, you know, I, I think in Kahl's case, they they very well might not have wanted to kill him. I think they would have dragged this process out a little bit. Uh, I think they would have arrested him again, quite possibly, killed him in jail. I mean, the, the way that the marshals behaved when they arrested him was, I don't want to say odd, because it's quite possible this is how they behave generally, um, or in other cases like this, but it seemed like they were not behaving in a way that you would expect of a law enforcement entity that just wanted to pick somebody up and take them to jail. It seemed like they wanted to provoke a confrontation. Uh, so I, I think ultimately, call might have died in custody or you know been locked away for 40 50 years i mean that they might have wanted to kill him ultimately but they might have settled for arresting him um the problem is they can't really do that if all your own crime is only like not paying taxes that you may or may not in fact owe Uh, in hampton's case i i am kind of surprised that they would use assassination as kind of the the first go-to because, you know, the Panthers for, you know, all of their uh, righteous actions that I, I I would say that they did or, you know, their, their just cause, uh, they did have the, you know, had guns in a bunch in the hands of a bunch of guys who, you know, felt very strongly about their beliefs. And inevitably as was specifically in Hampton's case, there was like a shootout uh, a day or two before he died which they used as the pretense to raid his house i'm surprised that they couldn't kind of trump up some charge to like nail him on but i think the problem is just like he was such a uh, such a prolific speaker and you know was known as that if they would put him in jail he would have become what his son eventually became in you know a different way uh, of just being like a a spokesman from prison because while you can isolate somebody and you can put him in solitary confinement and so on I, you know, you can't cut them off completely. And when you do that, you create a, a living martyr. Uh, that's not something you want uh, as a as an unjust government. Continuing on, the last thing I wanted to highlight, uh, sort of as a similarity between these two guys, is their assassinations, marking them as, as sort of true dissidents. There's, there's the joke of the CIA's greatest award in journalism being assassination, uh, because if you're telling the truth, they're going to come after you. And I think in in these guys' case, it really their assassinations sort of vindicate their you could say their life's missions, uh, because if they were not actually threats to power, they would have been you know probably either ignored or just sort of brushed off. If uh, the Black Panthers didn't actually pose a threat on some level, whether that be you know physical and in the sense of like guns and men on the street or just moral in the sense that they were feeding you know children then J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't have targeted them and of course J. Edgar Hoover was frankly a little bit nutty but he was also pretty shrewd and I think he did have a pretty good eye for groups that were capable of organizing in opposition to state power um, and in call's case I think obviously it was the, it was the same deal the IRS and by extension, the whole state sort of recognized, like, this might not be that big of a problem now, but we sense it's going to become more of one if we don't deal with this sooner rather than later. Hence, you know, I guess, kind of the what, what felt like kind of a rushed uh, attempt to arrest him. Um, so moving on, the last thing I wanted to talk about at all was sort of why are and Hampton even under the same system? Uh, you know, most places, when you think about like what is a country, a country is generally like for a group of people who are, you know, would, you would think they would have something in common, right? But I, no matter how hard you look, uh, Gordon Collins and Fred Hampton really don't have a lot in common at all. I mean, I think Hampton was probably some kind of atheist. I know he attended church a little bit, uh, particularly with like the black Catholic movement, but I don't know that he had really any particular... Uh, religious belief, whereas like that was like Gordon Call's whole thing, he was a real devoted Christian. Um obviously they're not like they didn't share an ethnic background, they didn't share a part of the country that they lived in. Um, you know, Call was a farmer, Hampton was like uh, you know, basically a lawyer if he was not doing activism. Uh so they had totally divergent ways of thinking and they're not uncommon, I guess would be the way to put it. Like there was a lot of people like Gordon Call or at least think generally like him, and there's a lot of people who think like Fred Hampton. So why are those two groups even in the same country at all? Why why are they both being oppressed by the same system? Uh, so that's sort of, I guess, an open-ended question uh, to think on. Uh, the last thing, I guess, in this episode is I wanted to mention the hopeful next episode that I'm going to be going over is a victory against gordon calls great enemy, that of the irs um, i won't tell you who it is people who know anything about the irs obviously might know that there's not that many people who beat the irs so it might be kind of obvious who i'm sort of teasing um it's a controversial group i don't want to say too much but uh tune in to the next episode and i hope you enjoyed this one thank you for listening